session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310-4410555. So I wanted to start off today sharing something a little more personal, about a personal experience or something I've gone through, but related to one of the major themes of my show, which is to normalize talking about mental health, mental health issues, to destigmatize mental health issues and seeking out mental health support or mental health services uh, and to have conversations about taboo topics because the only way we can break a taboo is by talking about it because a taboo is something we're not allowed to talk about but by having conversations it becomes easier and easier for us to have those conversations on those topics and so today I wanted to talk a bit about my own recent experience of starting therapy again so um, I think I've done five sessions now with a new therapist starting my, I think, third or fourth time, really, um, in therapy. And I'm, I'm really excited, also a little bit nervous, and wanted to share a bit about that. But just first wanted to mention it as something that I hope more and more becomes comfortable to talk about. You definitely see a movement towards having more comfort or even people putting it on social media. And, of course, there could be various intentions there, but still that I'm glad it can be said or talking to others that they're seeing a therapist. So fortunately, we're moving towards it being less stigmatized, less something that's only because you're really crazy or weak or whatever other judgmental words we use to, to talk about really what it means to be human. Um, so people are, are talking about that, which is good. So you're you know having those conversations, but we still have a lot of work to do to make it more okay, to make more of an equivalency between seeking out medical help and mental health for mental help for your mental health. So we have a lot of work left to be done, uh, but thankfully we're moving that direction. So yeah, I, I was thinking about it for some time. I actually was seeing a therapist until the pandemic um, happened and thought like many people did that I would take a break uh, from, from therapy and come back to it once the pandemic ended. But we're still in it. And so anyway, so I didn't go for a while. And there's probably my own resistance and things that I went through. Um, I had gone to therapy a few times before, once when I was a teenager for a short amount of time, but then more seriously when I was in graduate school. So when you are in almost any graduate training program to become a therapist, you're required to do a certain number of therapy hours as a client. Um, it was something like um, 40, I believe, which comes about to about a year, 40 or 45. So that's almost a year of weekly therapy. So I did that then. And then actually I continued after graduate school with the same therapist, then took a break, started again a few years um, later with someone else and did actually about four or five years with the same therapist. Then I had stopped. Um, and actually what really, I, I knew I would want to get back into therapy to continue understanding myself better, 
to improve my self-awareness, work on my issues that I have, that we all have, that we need to look at. Um, but I'd taken some time away from it and, and hadn't gotten myself back in. Now, what's good is for me to also share this, and I reflect on this myself, because as a therapist, I'm on one side of the couch or the Zoom or whatever it is now, but it's important to remember what it's like to be on the other side and how there can be recognition, for example, that we might benefit from something, might benefit from therapy, but might not act on making it happen. And so I recognized that that was happening in, my, in myself. And so what happened for me actually was um, I had this in mind and kind of by a chance encounter um, through a friend, got reintroduced to some of Irvin Yalom's work and read one of his books last year, talked about on the show, A Matter of Death and Life, which I highly recommend. Um, and then listened to some more of his interviews and different things and heard that he is doing one-time sessions. And in the book, he talked about it. But um, as he's gotten older, he saw that it's harder for him to do ongoing therapy to keep everything in mind. And that type of memory can be difficult. But in a single session, he felt he could still be helpful to it's more of a consultation type of a thing to work with an individual in that way. And so I was like, okay, it seems like still not very likely. Those of you that might know, Irvin Yalom is a, a really big name and individual in the field of mental health, has written many books, some of them fiction, some nonfiction, very big in existential therapies and group therapy. He's written some very important books um, about that. Um, so, you know, as a result, he has, uh, you know, was a, a person that I thought would be very interesting to have a session with. And so um, I just reached out to him by uh, email and he responded actually that day. And so I had to wait a few months for the appointment. He, he said he was booked for a few months. And then I had that appointment, I think it was in November. And it was quite a, an interesting experience to be in his presence um, and, and to talk to him. And something I experienced was he focused a lot on me getting back into therapy. And I actually thought he might because I heard in one, the interview he had that when he talks to therapists, he focuses on that. Um, and not just for therapists, I think he does that in general. He recognizes that a single session is not going to be enough, and you need to to go to longer-term therapy. And actually, I felt a bit of a, a frustration because I felt at times, uh, or a lot of the time in that one session, you know, you only have one session with someone that you're so excited to get to speak with, um, and I felt a lot of it was focused on that, and a friend of mine had a similar experience. Um, but anyway... But I recognized that he probably saw there was a lot of resistance in me in, in doing that or something was holding me back. And so uh, through that conversation, it's interesting. He had said very kindly um, in a month or so, you know, I like to hear from my the people I've met with and how they're doing. Send me an update on how you're doing. And I think also, and he also said, you can send me feedback on how you felt the session went. I'm always still trying to learn, which is also very remarkable. Someone who is um, has so much experience, looked up to, and so much knowledge, still recognizing that he has room to learn and grow and to understand. I thought that was pretty pretty awesome that he said that. So, um, you know, had that session and ended. He said, if you can, please send me an um, update, um, and I will, you know, let me know how this is. Now, I <laughs> had put off starting therapy. I'd asked a few people, but I did not... Um, uh, you know, really pursue it seriously. And because of that, I hadn't reached out to him to give this follow-up. So I think he did give me that homework smartly because it did keep it in the back of my mind. I even had made a note in my calendar, email Dr. Yalom a month from our session, and I did not do that because 
I had not started therapy again and felt that I, I don't want to, you know, talk to the teacher without having done the homework, so to speak. But anyway, uh, it took about another month, I think, from when we had our session. About two months later, I did start therapy. And I actually still haven't messaged him. So this is a reminder to myself to write that email. Uh, now, I shouldn't just do it because I've done the homework. I probably would have been better off responding to him earlier. Nonetheless, started therapy um, and, and asked around. That's something I also recognize is that as a, a psychologist myself, I have access to colleagues who can refer people to me, which can be very valuable to have that. So I know not everyone knows how or where to find a therapist. That could be very challenging. And so that could be important. Um, and, and so improving the ways that people find a therapist, I think, is something very important for us to be looking at ways to do so. But anyway, I did start. And as I said, it was interesting to be on the other side of things. First, just even, even my kind of pre-contemplation or contemplation of starting again. But then starting and remembering what it feels like to be in that vulnerable position on the other side. And I always do value and cherish that clients come into therapy and share their vulnerability and open up with me and trust that I can help them. Um, and I, I hope I do. Uh, but it's a reminder of what it feels like to really be in that position. So that's been interesting for me. And also, after I actually had my first session, that night I had some pretty intense dreams that were not so pleasant. I woke up in a really bad mood the next day, really, really bad. It was like a dark, dark mood, be really down on myself and just things in general. I went for a long walk, which I think was helpful, but still I didn't feel good. And I was able, even in that feeling of really this bad, foul place that I felt, recognize that this is likely because I'm starting therapy again, that there's things coming up that I now facing that I have not been facing, feelings and memories and things even in my present and things I need to change. And so that's likely related to this bad feeling that I'm having. And so that's something important for people to keep in mind. Uh, it is a common experience that when you start therapy, although you're obviously going to feel better and to take care of yourself, you might feel worse. Often people do feel worse before they feel better. Some people feel better, just the release of it makes them feel so good. But many people will have an experience of feeling worse, and unfortunately, they'll stop. And that's why it's very common for people to only go to two or three sessions and then stop going to therapy. And they, I've even seen it where, uh, you know, they might tell me whether they kind of ghost you or they stop coming in one way or another. Or if they tell you, they might say, you know, I might not really need it. They might use time or money as their excuse. Uh, I think I'm okay. Uh, and they might avoid going into the stuff that can be uncomfortable, or they might be feeling worse. And so they don't want to continue. And I'll often talk to them about that, that you can feel worse before you feel better. But at the end of the day, of course, it's their choice whether or not to continue. Um, but so I did have some of that feeling of feeling worse. You know, there could be this sense of like things are moving within you in this emotional way in your psyche. And that can be difficult. Anytime we have change, it's tough. It's unsettling. We have to make adjustments. And that's always going to be hard and require more effort than keeping things the same, than letting things be the way that they are. And so I am only about five sessions in and already feel like there's been some understandings about myself, uh, some changes that I can already recognize brewing. I wouldn't say things have necessarily changed. But I also recognize that there's so many factors that go into everything we do, but something like therapy has so many factors. So 
Of course, the therapist you're seeing is very important. I think there's many good therapists out there in the world, uh, but what's really important is the match you feel with that therapist. And so um, those factors of the therapist themselves, who they are, how they are, how they practice, all the way, those things are very impactful. But also what I've realized is so important is where I am in my life and my own development. Because I've, the first time I went into more long-term therapy was probably what, like, I don't know, 13 years ago, something like that. Um, and so, yes, in some ways I'm very much the same. And a lot of the issues I had then I still have in different degrees and in different ways, but they're the same. Um, but I've also changed a lot too. Uh, changed that things have become different for me. My life has changed. Obviously, I'm in a different place than I was then when I was in graduate school compared to now. Um, how I am and how open I am to certain changes also I've noticed has changed, that I'm ready to face certain things that I might not have been before. So it's interesting to recognize that, of course, the therapist can make a big difference and obviously does, but where we are makes a difference. And so I've also worked with clients where I've seen this over the years where they might come in at one point and work on some things and then come back years later and be ready to work on something else, which can be quite, quite interesting to see. So I just wanted to share some thoughts and uh, parts of my experience going back to therapy. One, to encourage people to feel comfortable talking about going to therapy. I don't think it's something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. We can actually be quite proud of it. Just like if someone tells us they're going to a personal trainer, we say good for you, taking your physical health seriously. Going to a therapist means you're taking your mental health seriously. You're trying to understand yourself better, to grow, and to make positive changes in your life. That should be seen as a good thing. Um, and also just sharing some of the things that I've gone through in case you, you go through some of those things, to be aware that it's obviously a good thing, but not an easy process. The analogy I use is, you know, sometimes we say therapy is self-care, which it is, but it's not self-care like going to get a massage where you just relax and feel better. It's like actually going back, like I was saying, the personal trainer analogy is a good one, where you work hard to get the results, but it's hard work and pain in the process. So if you're thinking about going to therapy, I hope this will be a nudge in the direction to overcome whatever resistance might be there if you have that possibility to start that process for yourself. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm calling regarding my son, who is a 20-year-old. Okay. Uh, the question I have is a bit maybe strange. Uh, as a Muslim family, uh, when he was born, uh, after a few days, we obviously circumcised him. And I think he was okay with that. Uh, he's now 20, as I said. And since a few months ago, he has started to ask, uh, why did you circumcise me? Uh, did you get my consent? Uh, it was a, a bit uh, a brutal what you did to me. Uh, he's searching the Internet and has found something that uh, some people say that actually you have lost some possibly nerves or sensitivity to that area. So we are not sure really he, he got some feedback from uh, friends or uh, someone else, but uh, every now and then he uh, starts to ask these questions, and uh, really we are not sure that how we are able to deal with uh, these questions in a 
the correct way to really persuade him that really at that time that's what we thought is the best for him and that's for our culture mm -hmm. our background or uh, religion uh, so I just wanted to know as an expert uh, what really we should tell him uh, to yeah. convince him that really we didn't do anything faulty. Uh, well, here's the thing, you know, I would say when you say, how do we convince him we didn't do anything faulty or wrong? And I wouldn't want to start from that mindset. Of course, we want to resolve the issue. But if we create that we have to just convince him that what we did was right, we probably won't have the type of conversation that will lead to a mutual understanding. So, you know, this is a complicated issue because you did something and you thought it was right, and mo most people, millions, billions of people are doing it, and it seems acceptable, but he's bringing up a question about it, and it's tough because obviously we can't change the past, but there's something to what he's saying. It doesn't mean what you did was wrong, but what I would encourage you to do is to have a conversation where you try to understand him and where he's coming from, and then also help him understand you and where you were coming from when you made that decision. So I, I wouldn't start from a place that we have to convince him we did nothing wrong. We want to have a conversation where both sides get to share and we get to a mutual understanding uh, of what happened and why it might have happened. Yeah, I understand. But the question he's asking us is somehow that uh, uh, we have done something wrong and he wants some, he wants some explanation that really what was in our mind at that time. And he's asking, was it, uh, I don't know, uh, religion? Was it uh, uh, culture? And because we live in Europe, obviously the other kids, or at the moment, obviously he's not a kid anymore, uh, are not the same as him. And I'm still not sure why he was okay until, uh, I would say, a few months ago, and then he started to ask these questions. Uh, and again, as I said, he's searching Internet, and uh, mm -hmm. he has found some... Uh, People saying that really uh, you have some deficit, you have lost some uh, nerve cells. Uh, and now because he's now himself is a medical student, he's asking us, did you get my consent? And I'm telling him that you were just an infant, mm -hmm. and there is no way to get your consent. And he says, why well, didn't wait for me to grow up, and then you get my consent, and then if I was happy, uh, then do circumcision. So, well, yeah. Um, I'm confused that really what... Shall I tell him? Well, I mean, you know, telling him the truth is obviously the best place to start, and telling him what you've been telling him seems to make sense. But again, you know, look, you're saying, why did he just bring this up a few months ago? He didn't even know it was an option or what it means till recently or understand that there's something to, to even look at. And yeah, if you look online, there's on any topic, people that will be extreme on any uh, in any direction. But I mean, can you see the point in what he's saying is that you didn't ask me? Now, here's let me say this first. You did millions of things without his consent when he was a baby. You had to do, take care of him and help him survive. Even something else medical, as a child, you probably gave him vaccines when he was a baby. You couldn't wait to ask him for his permission, especially for his health. You had to do it back then. And so he really couldn't give consent when a lot of these decisions were being made because that's how they are. And something like circumcision, even answering that question is that I think the understanding is we'll do it earlier so it's less painful and less of a process. Now, um, it doesn't mean the child doesn't feel anything or won't remember it just because they won't have a conscious memory. So I don't know enough enough about 
if there's research being done, it'd be so impossible to determine some of these things of what the effect is of circumcision. But nonetheless, he, he couldn't give consent. So there's a point in a way of what he's saying. It doesn't mean what you did was wrong. And so to me, this is one of those classic cases where there's truth to both sides. I don't think what you did was wrong especially with you know the the norm and the understanding and the cultural and all those issues i don't think what you did was wrong but i also think we can hear what he's saying and try to understand his feelings and his thoughts and see if we can come to some kind of resolution with both sides knowing we can't change the past obviously we can't go back and change what happened but can we come to a different place now i think for you it's shocking because he never said anything and now he's pretty angry or upset about it so i can understand you're not sure how to even respond. Um, but, you know, I don't think you have to try to convince him that you did nothing wrong. First, try to show him you're trying to understand his feelings, understand where he's coming from. Yeah, I think what you said totally uh, right, because you're right. We, obviously, we, uh, people do vaccination for kids. They give uh, medications, uh, mm-hmm. and no one really asks for consent. Uh, and even I asked him a few times, is, is there something else that every now and then you bring this subject up? Is this something that you are really uh, what a, a projection or uh, is something subconsciously going on and you are just trying to uh, give this as an example, but the problem is somewhere else? But it, it keeps telling me that, no, that, that's exactly the problem. It's not, nothing else. And even I asked him, did someone give you bad feedback or in a party mm-hmm. someone uh, made a joke of you? And again, he assured me, no, not really. And I'm still not 100% sure that uh, something else is going on or not. But what you said, I exactly told him that uh, as a child, uh, that was the best time to do it. Because imagine if you did it when you were, I don't know, 12 or 14, you still have memory of that. But then as a kid or as an infant, you, you or even me, we don't remember what uh, happened and uh, how this happened. So but but here's the thing i mean you're right although again as i said although you might not have a conscious memory doesn't mean it doesn't affect us but what you're telling me you know i said a lot of things and you're saying the part where i agreed with you but do you understand where your son is coming from uh to be honest i'm still not 100 percent sure that really is it the, the main problem he keeps asking me and my wife or is something else is going on and then he's trying to really uh, change it to this problem. uh, Well, it could be, but, you know, if we start a conversation in that way, it usually doesn't go as well. I would rather you just try to understand what he's actually telling you and not say there has to be something behind it because you're also saying what he's telling you is not enough. Now, I'm not saying what you did was wrong, but I can still understand what he's saying. It's like you didn't ask me and you did something that changed my body that I can never change. You know, I can understand where he's coming from. It doesn't mean you did something bad or a huge mistake. Everyone is basically doing it, although just because everyone does something doesn't make it okay. But nonetheless, you making that decision 20 years ago makes a lot of sense. But can you still see his side of things? Just don't say it's something else. Just based on what he's telling you, does it make sense to you at all what he's saying? What he said, uh, maybe he uh, he's, as I say, he's searching some uh, articles on the internet and he has sent some to me and then uh, I think he has bias because most of them they are against uh, circumcision. But I mm-hmm. told him that you need to be neutral. You need to go and find... Uh, 
articles uh, uh, pro circumcision, not not really uh, all of them against it. Uh, and let me so, ask you: Is the against it things like you were saying, like the sensation might be different? This is a this is a, what is it in his mind that uh, he has lost some. Uh, it might, and it might be true, but but here's the thing: I, like I still feel like you're you're not hearing him when he's saying you. I mean whether or not he's looking just at the pro or the anti or whatever, but you change something in his body. It's what parents do. Most of them do. But so you're saying you can't understand. He's saying you did that without my consent. And now I have to live with this. And I don't like that. Yes. I think that's what he said. Okay. It's something that I don't like. uh, But can you understand? Can you understand what he's saying? Mm, I understand what he's saying, but uh, I'm not sure what the best answer I can give to him that uh, at least make him less unhappy but uh, but, but yeah, i understand he said that so i thought some, something to my body which uh, yeah was not right but i think what might ma- help the most is just showing him i can understand how you feel that way and I, that's it and not not try to convince him that it was good or bad or something just say mm. i can understand that your that feeling it's understandable and then and, and show him you really understand and you know you can say i ask him if he understands what decision you made, and maybe he won't, but I hope he will. But what I'm saying is rather than convince him how he should feel about it, I would rather you try to show him you understand how he feels. Mm. Because you're creating this like battle where we're going to, okay, let's look online and see, no, it's actually good, no, it's actually bad. And, and, you know, you could do some of that, but I don't know if that's going to be the solution. It seems like some, and there could be more going on, you're right, and it could be other things, not just about this, but how does he feel about control in the relationship you've had with him or if you made decisions for him in other ways as well but i wouldn't start with okay this is not important you mean something else you know if he's saying something is important at least start there it might open the door to other things but i would start with what he's sharing with you is what's bothering him and not go to let's see what you really mean because if you told me you're mad at me because i said something and i say oh no no you're not mad at me because of something i said this is something else you're dealing with you know it doesn't really feel good rather than me saying okay what did i say that you didn't like oh okay i could see how you don't like that i said this in that way you know um so i would stay with what he's sharing with you and don't feel like in that conversation i have to convince him what i did was okay i would rather you approach from i want to show I want to actually, and then also show him that I'm trying to understand him and where he's coming from. Yeah, what what surprises uh, us is uh, he didn't ask this question when he was, I don't know, or at least to that extent he didn't ask us when he was 10 or 12 or 15. Well, they don't really know. I mean, but that's, I mean, like a lot of things are like that. Sometimes, you know, a a child might not tell you, I don't like how you talk to me until they're 30 years old. You know, they might not realize it or become aware of something. So that's Mm. what what I'm hearing you is like you're saying, oh, see, it's not real because he never said anything before. But well, yeah, when he was 10, he didn't really know much about other, about circumcision and about what it looks like or what other people, you know, he wasn't aware of those things. So uh, I, I think you're looking for, I don't think what you did was wrong. I think this is a common practice, something that people do, and it's very, in that way, normal. But what I'm saying is you're looking for ways to prove that his feeling is not what he's saying and also that you didn't do something wrong. And I'm saying go more into understanding his feeling and what he's going through. And that actually will probably let the conversation go to a better place because right now it's kind of like this war. He's saying you did something bad and this is bad and you're saying, no, we didn't. And so it's just push and pull. 
But if you can, instead of pulling away from each other, move towards each other, there could be a space to have an understanding that, okay, you know, we d I could see that you didn't like, that we did something to your body that you could not give consent to, and now you have to live with this, and there could be consequences maybe I don't even understand. I think they are fairly minor, but nonetheless, at least hear him when he's telling you. Um, and then at some point sharing with him, I hope you can see why from a cultural perspective and different reasons. And yes, we thought this is a better way of doing it because in our mind, you have to do it anyway. So why not do it when you're a baby? Because that's common practice and it's easier. And maybe you remember it less as a conscious memory. So this is why we did it this way. So I would hope that's the end of the conversation is more about understanding rather than proving right and wrong. And you'll get to a much better place if you do that. So uh, I would, if he tells you he's upset about this, keep it about that and don't say what else is going on. And then try to show him your understanding of his perspective. And hopefully he'll give space for you to understand what you did as well and, and get to a better place. And if there's other things, there will likely be more opportunity to talk about them if you resolve this specific thing first and then maybe he'll recognize oh yeah there's other ways that i feel like you guys controlled my life or you made decisions for me or something there could be more to it you might be right but i i think it's better to validate his feelings and what he's actually bringing up and using that as the starting point and going from there yeah what i told him for example is that billions of people in this world uh muslim non-muslim they have done circumcision and really uh I think uh, you cannot say that uh, this was something really uh, not correct. Otherwise, people wouldn't have to do that. Uh, but but what are you saying that we shouldn't focus on being right or wrong? Yeah. We should understand. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's difficult to get to the bottom of his mind what's going on. Uh, but but it might and again like I said I would I would start from this is the thing on his mind not that there's something else in the bottom of his mind and he already knows billions of people alive have done it or in the past have done it. So it's not that he doesn't have this information and I wouldn't go too far out. I would focus on you and him or, you know, you and his mom and him having a conversation rather than, well, billions of people did it. So you can't feel this way anymore. Well, let's let him share how he's feeling and focus on you and him and understanding each other more. And I feel it from you that each time I stop talking and you say something, it's almost always from this place of, but see, this is how I told him that I wasn't wrong or I didn't do a mistake. And like I said, I don't think you did something wrong, but we want to understand if he's feeling something about it, let's have a conversation about what he's sharing with you and start there. Like I said, there could be other things. I mean, there's always more than one thing in a family that's going on. There could be other reasons why this is coming to his mind. But for now, let's stay with what he's bringing up to you and then use that as the starting point and try to resolve that by creating mutual understanding, and then we'll see where we can go from there. Right. Okay, uh, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Sure, Holland. it was nice uh, talking to you. Can I ask, is this is recorded in case I want to listen to it again? That's right. Yeah, it's recorded. It replays again, but also it'll be on my SoundCloud page and my... my um, my podcast is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so by this okay. evening I will upload it and you, you can find it there. And can I ask, would, do you do a private counseling sessions or not? I, I do, I, but I, I, I don't do anything outside of even actually California for new clients. 
Um, so I, I can't practice outside of the United States. I know you said you're in Europe, so unfortunately... Oh, okay, so you uh, cannot yeah. do via Zoom or... IF. No, yeah, I mean, it's the, the, obviously the Zoom part is possible. It's just that with the licensing, I can't do outside of the United States, yeah. All right. Yes. Okay, thank you very much. Pleasure speaking with you. Have a great day thank or you. evening. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. 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 All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. So in that last call, um, with that father calling about his son and, and the issues that we're having, this theme came up, um, which is when we're having a disagreement, how to go forward. Now, of course, anytime we have a disagreement, quickly there is this sense of proving ourselves right, and it becomes about winning and losing. So we feel like we're being wronged or. We're, we're being challenged in some way, and it brings out this side of us that wants to be right. And unfortunately, when it comes to relationships, trying to prove ourselves right ends up being the wrong thing in uh, the relationship. Either you're, even if you win, you lose in the relationship. And if you lose, you might feel like you double lose. But either way, there's no real winning in the relationship when it becomes about proving someone right and proving someone wrong. So that's why I was encouraging him and wanted to talk in this segment about the importance of that. And it's not just about uh, parent-child relationships, very common in romantic relationships as well, where we get into an argument and it's understandable. That's the first reaction is, you think that, I think this. And of course, often in a relationship, it's even more personal. You did that to me, or I did that to you, or you're accusing me of this, or saying I'm bad, or saying that I did something wrong. And we become defensive and offensive. We defend ourselves and then try to offend the other to win the argument. And this tends to be the initial starting point. It brings up these feelings. But what we want to try to move towards is recognizing that if we're in a loving relationship, and this is why it's so important to have that foundation of a emotionally safe and connected relationship, because what we do see is some people are in a relationship where even though they are together by name or on paper or by commitment of something they've said to each other, they're not together in the sense that they're not on the same team. They're against each other. They've hurt each other so many times that there's this sense of trying to uh, have to protect ourselves from the other person or feel that it's a constant war and a battle. And so you don't feel like it's safe to be vulnerable, safe to acknowledge the other person's side even, or to try to understand them. And this unfortunately leads to a dynamic where any disagreement has to become a war because we don't feel safe uh, with one another. But if you can have that type of uh, emotionally safe environment where you do feel like you have a loving and trusting partner that cares about you, then you hopefully can, after that initial reaction of, oh, like something doesn't feel right, whether it's you're being accused of something or being uh, attacked or feeling like you're getting attacked by your partner or whatever it might be, that you can respond by, Let's try to create a win-win, meaning that we're not going to try to prove who's right and wrong. We're going to try to make things right between us. We're going to try to win together. And so what this means is we want to start, as I was talking with the previous caller, that we're not focusing on what I did was right or wrong or what you did was right or wrong. We want to try to understand each other first, mutual understanding. Make that your primary goal. And the other things will come from that, but try to make that the starting point of let me try to understand where you're coming from, understand your perspective, understand your thoughts and feelings about whatever it is that we are discussing, 
and not try to just prove you wrong and prove myself right. This is something that I encounter regularly in couples therapy, where when people first come in, and there does need to be some time for this, but the fingers are pointed at the other person. This is what you did wrong. This is, you know, how do I look at how I deal with this person? And I sometimes joke for the, especially the first session, I think a couple's therapist should wear a robe because you do feel like you're the judge and they're telling you a judge's robe. Uh, they're trying to tell you who's right or wrong, who should be guilty and not guilty and who wins in this case, where really that's obviously not going to be the resolution. So first there does need to be space to air your grievances in the sense that you're coming to therapy and you need to share what's bothering you and what doesn't feel good. But I always tell the couple that right now the fingers are pointed at each other. The only way we're really going to get anywhere is we point the finger back to ourselves and see what can I do differently? What have I done that creates the problems and the issues that we have? And what do I need to change to make things better in this relationship? Not just point at you and blame you and put it all on you to make the change. I need to look at myself. And so just looking at one disagreement or one argument, that same uh, type of concept or that same idea holds that it's not about pointing the finger. You want to try to look at yourself and what you're what you're doing or what you've done. Um, a way of wording this is not focusing on blame, but focusing on contribution. So it's not who's bad or who's mean or who's wrong, but it's more understanding that if we've gone to some kind of disagreement, we've both contributed something to getting to this point. What have I contributed to get here? And sometimes it could be hard to find because someone can think, well, look, this person kept doing this thing. How am I contributing if they kept hurting me in this way? Well, often one of the ways that we actually contribute without realizing is that we didn't bring something up. So something happened that you didn't like and you didn't communicate that you were not okay with it the first time and now it's become 20 times and you're really frustrated to the point where you blew up. So you can be like, well, what did I do wrong? They kept doing the wrong thing, but you were more in the wrong or you contributed by not actually bringing up that you were not okay. That responsibility is on each of us to say what we like and don't like and if we're hurt in some way. So really when we look at it deeply, we recognize that in almost any disagreement, both individuals have contributed in some way to get to where you are at that point. So you want to focus on that that contribution. And so, yeah, you share, you know, the things you don't like, as I mentioned before, but then we want to get to a point of understanding, mutual understanding. You don't have to even agree and say you had to do what you did or you should have done it that way or that you should have been offended by what I said. But you might be able to understand, I can understand how you were hurt by what I said, or that those words that I said, or that's a sensitivity for you. So even though I didn't think what I said was bad, but I want to recognize that that's something you've shared with me, or now I'm learning, sometimes we don't know till we have these conversations, that that's something that can bother you more than I realize, and I want to be careful about that. We need to talk about that. So this comes up, for example, a partner makes a joke, and then the other one says, oh, that hurt my feelings. And the focus isn't on there are hurt feelings and let's resolve it. Often it's like, oh, come on, you're being sensitive, or it was just a joke, or was that joke bad enough for you to be offended? So we're just focusing on the you know, right or wrong or the guilty and innocence of the perpetrator in this case, rather than let's try to understand what happened. And we have to think about that too. So imagine you said something to your partner and their feelings are hurt. We would hope that that's what matters to you, that my partner is in pain, rather than where we often go, which is like, am I, did I do a good or bad thing, which might be, am I a good or bad person? 
that we might not be able to tolerate. I know I'm not a mean husband or wife or a bad husband or wife. I, I just made a joke that was playful. It's my partner's fault that they're hurt. So you can see we're focusing on blame. And if it's not my fault, then it's yours. And I don't want it to be mine. So I'm going to put it on you rather than understanding. You know, so if you imagine, let's say you walked by your partner and as you bumped them gently, they said, ow. Now you think to yourself, I felt like I didn't hit them very hard, but they're in pain. That should be the most important thing is that they are hurting. Not, well, that's, I don't know. I did a normal bump as we walked by. That's on you. That's not really a kind thing and doesn't really make sense and is not going to get us anywhere. Now you might learn, oh, your partner is sore. They worked out the other day or they have something there that hurts in general that you didn't know about. And so it could be a sensitivity of theirs that led to that. But we'd hope the starting point, if it's of understanding, it doesn't get to a point of, well, you're weak. I didn't do anything. Or you're sensitive. Or I'm, I didn't do anything. Or the other person's like, oh, you're just a, a mean person that wants to hurt me. We're not going to get to a resolution starting from that place. But if we could try to understand the person says, oh, my arm hurts. And you, if you can be curious about that, oh, really? What, what hurts? And they say this part of my arm. And, and then we try to understand each other. Like, okay, it seems like I didn't even realize, oh, my elbow hit your arm. I didn't recognize that. And maybe it was sharper than I thought. So there is space to learn from each other and try to understand. But if we quickly go and take our stances of who's going to be right or wrong, we don't really get anywhere. And so I bring this up because I think most people get this point, but it can always be important to have the reminder because our natural tendency is to go towards proving if we were right or wrong, proving if the other person is either they're the one that hurt us and they're bad or we're, you know, that they're sensitive if they're hurt by something we did, rather than recognizing we're not going to get anywhere if we have that focus. It takes some time. And it might even take some time in that something happens and the feelings come up. You might need a little bit of time to reflect and to also let yourself cool off, depending on how upset or angry you got, because it will usually start as a war. We'll, we'll come off that way if we're hurt by the other person, or if we feel like they have accused us of something that we feel like is unfair or saying we hurt them when we don't feel like we did anything wrong. So I hope you'll keep this in mind in your family relationships and general romantic relationships, that when you have a conversation, try to make the goal mutual understanding and understanding how we got to this place and then mutually resolving it together rather than trying to prove who is right or wrong, who was good or bad in this. Because even if you win that type of a battle, you lose the, the war of your relationship or you turn your relationship into a war where you'll constantly be fighting in a way that's not going to be productive and bring you together. We'll just be hurting each other in the process. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So today is what, February 9th? Uh, depending on when you're listening to it, it's whenever that, that is. But um, here in the United States, I think around the world, they celebrate Valentine's Day too in some countries. But the 14th will be Valentine's Day. Um, an interesting day. A lot of, I think, pressure and expectation gets put on that day for everyone. One is if you're in a relationship, there could be a lot of expectation of getting gifts and being romantic and making plans. And so people can feel a pressure about that. And then there's also a pressure for people who are not in a relationship of having a date or if they don't have a date, how do they feel about not having a date and this reminder of being single if it's something they don't feel good about. So it's definitely a day that gets built up 
um, a lot, probably too much, as is usually the case with these kinds of things. I uh, wanted to share some thoughts on that. I, I think I'll be doing a show. Monday is Valentine's Day, so I'll probably share some more there, maybe a different aspect of it. But I wanted to talk a bit about uh, some of those things. So to, to begin with, this uh, the pressure that's put on it. I definitely think it's too much, for sure. Um, I've seen, you know, you'll, you'll see, I'm sure, so many memes about um, Valentine's Day. I remember one it was something like people like to complain about Valentine's Day, that it's a commercial and corporate holiday, unlike all the all other holidays that exist in the wild. Um, you know, so basically making a joke that really all holidays have been commercialized uh, to a big degree, often even created out of just, you know, a commercial mindset or uh, focus or motivation. So this is also the same. The way I think of Valentine's Day, I've, I've mentioned this to couples before too, you know, I don't think you have to put a pressure on it, definitely not. Um, but also I don't think it should be the thing that that's the day to be romantic and then the rest of the days don't be romantic. So you would hope that romance is something that's part of your relationship. And I wanted to actually talk about what I mean even when I say romance. Um, but to me, if you're not going to celebrate Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day, that's fine. But hopefully you'll have 10 or 15 days or nights a year where you have that same kind of feeling, at least, of having a romantic night or day together. So it doesn't have to be on February 14th, but it doesn't mean don't do it on February 14th and don't do it ever. Hopefully it's something that you do however you and your partner want to do it. There also is this pressure that it has to be roses and chocolates and uh, fancy dinners, but you can do whatever it is that makes or means romance to you. Um, that That's something you should be thinking about. So uh, I think there is that pressure that doesn't have to be on there. And if you don't have a date, it's not a big deal. It's kind of funny. Uh, you know, some people I'm sure do enjoy it, but for a lot of people, it's a stressful thing when they're in a relationship and then people that are not are wishing they were. So and in some ways, there is some grass is always greener type of a um, phenomenon there. But when I mentioned about romance, this is a, something I think is very important for couples to to think about because we do often, when we hear, even when I say something romantic or a romantic gift or gesture, usually what comes to mind are bigger things. You know, it might be a box of chocolates or roses or something like that that's big but small still, but sometimes it's some grand gesture going flying to Paris all of a sudden or doing something really romantic, some big gesture to, to show your love. And I don't think those things are bad, but to me, those things are like a penthouse or a cherry on top that if there's nothing underneath, it's fairly worthless and it's going to fall apart. So if you have a penthouse without a strong foundation and building underneath, eventually it crumbles without that. And so when we have these grand gestures and people sometimes unfortunately think that's what we should be striving for, so we need that because we see it in movies and TV shows and it looks like those are the ultimate signs of love. Or social media has also done this because people will post a picture or a very short video and then people might comment or think couple goals because they think that's what they should want. And a genuinely healthy relationship cannot be expressed in a picture or a short video. You can have something that looks good or looks cute or looks romantic, but there's no way of expressing what a good relationship feels like in a short clip that will, will be one of these relationship goals types of posts. It's usually couples that look good and dress nicely and are in some very nice place and they take the picture in a certain way with a nice filter 
So it's more that it looks good rather than it necessarily feels good. And that's what to me is so important is that people can get drawn into this sense of creating a relationship and focusing on how it looks rather than how it feels. And a good relationship feels good. It doesn't necessarily have to look good to anyone else, but to you and your partner and how you feel. That's what's going to matter. So when we talk about romance, not being necessarily the grand gestures, but looking at it as the small things. And John Gottman has written about this before and talks about this. It's about those small moments that you do something for one another. You know, I think he uses examples like remembering that your partner has a big meeting and giving them a loving text or call before of encouragement or support. Even, you know, he talks about bids of attention. So someone just wants your attention for a second. Oh, hey, look at this thing. And you look, even though you have something to do and, and share, uh, you know, that moment with them. Not just to focus on him, but I'm remembering in a talk he gave, he he was talking about reading this book and he was so excited. It was some kind of like a murder mystery or suspense type of novel. And he was getting to the end where he would find out who the killer was or something where he was really excited. But he saw his wife combing her hair, brushing her something in Thine's Day. It's not that I'm saying dis I discourage that. I think it would be very, very nice if people both like that, enjoy that night together and make it what you want. I think sometimes it gets so much hate, you know, people saying, oh, it's too much pressure and, and too expensive and all those things which are true. But some people, I know lots of couples that genuinely enjoy sharing that night together. So make it whatever it is for you. Um, yes, no one should tell us how to celebrate love and romance. It's up to us to, to have the moments and the moment that feels right to us. But coming back to this notion of what is going to create that, that romance, recognize that you want to look for a partner and create a relationship where there is these small acts, actions and acts that are happening consistently in the relationship to help make it what it's going to be. And also that when things go wrong, which inevitably they do, how do we repair those things? Because what happens often in a relationship is that the things that are happening that we don't like, we don't address, and they build up like debris. So it's kind of like there is this wire between you and your partner that's electrified, and it's it's that's what's keeping the passion alive. But if you don't deal with the issues, it's like these this debris keeps weighing on it, and so that connection gets less hot, less of a spark, and so you feel less for one another over time. Um, often you'll hear people say a very common uh, reason for divorce or breakup or some kind of separation is we grew apart. Now that can mean a lot of things. At times people do, of course, you're going to change and evolve as an individual over the course of your relationship. So you might grow in different ways, which is a challenge that many couples will face in different ways. However, I still feel that if you focus on the relationship, you could try to maintain the connection. So, But there's that kind of growing apart that we have changed and how we've grown over time during the course of our relationship. But often what people mean is that they've grown apart and that their emotional connection has gotten weaker and they've gotten more distant from each other. So they, that's what they usually mean by grown apart is that we have just not you know, stayed as close and over time we got further and further away and apart from each other where the connection almost has become non-existent or very minimal or there's still a positive feeling. We might even like each other or love each other in, in a type of way of caring for each other, but not in some kind of passionate connection or any type of connection that's stronger than that. And so what I always think when people say they grew apart 
is realizing that when we say grew apart, it means you're starting together, but slowly getting further away from each other. Meaning that if one or both of you recognized that some space was being created and said something when you were a little bit apart, there would be more of an opportunity to come back together. But once too much space has been formed between each of you or together, it could be almost impossible or very difficult to bring things back. It's kind of like a fire. It can get very weak and you might be able to revive it. But if it's completely gone, it can be very difficult to start it again. So we have to at least some have some of that fire there. But so we need to talk about things when we notice those changes that we're getting less close. But most people don't. They just think a relationship should just be okay on its own. They avoid the uncomfortable conversations that it might take to bring up why we're getting more distant, why you're not feeling as close. And so we avoid those conversations, sadly, until it could be too late. I often think of, you know, when I see partners who have grown apart, what could have happened had they had some of those conversations? Sometimes when a relationship has changed, it seems inevitable, or we think, oh, it just means we weren't meant to be if we are not together. It seems to make sense. If we're not together anymore, don't want to be together, it wasn't meant to be. But I think that takes away the uh, very important aspect and element of a relationship, which is that it actually involves hard work to keep it going. It's like saying you had a car and it no longer runs, and you're like, well, yeah, I guess it wasn't meant to be for that car to run. And then we realize, well, you didn't put gas in the car, you didn't do oil changes, you didn't wash it and do all the things that is necessarily maintain that car healthy and strong. So it's not inevitable to just say, well, if the car's not running, that means it wasn't meant to be. It's that you didn't take care of it. And so similarly, if you, similarly, if you don't take care of any relationship, it doesn't matter how connected you are, how much of a spark there was, how aligned you are, and how good of a match you are for one another, if you don't tend to it, it's not going to to stay strong. So I, I sometimes use that same analogy of the fire is that people complain that the fire is out, the passion is out, but if you don't tend to the fire, how can you complain about it going out? You have to work on that fire to keep it going, to keep it strong, to keep it healthy. Another layer of the, the, the fire argument or analogy that I like is that to think of your passion and your relationship like a fire where it needs both closeness and space. So a fire needs some kind of heat to keep itself going. That's necessary, that heat, but it also needs oxygen to breathe, which is space. So to have a passionate relationship that keeps on going, you need to have both closeness and space. And so this also relates to what I was saying before about partners growing apart. It doesn't mean there should be no space or you have to constantly feel like you're together 100% of the time or 100%. There's going to be ebbs and flows. Even when you look at very healthy relationships that have lasted a long time, there will be these ebbs and flows of how connected they feel. Now, again, you want to pay attention to them, but there isn't the sense that you'll be 100% perfectly connected the whole time. Things happen. You go through ups and downs. You might want a little bit more space. Your partner might. This is a big source of disagreement with couples that I see is that most people, you know, ideally we'd all want the same amount of closeness and space, the same amount of alone time and together time. But that's not going to be the case because you're two different people. So more than likely, there will be some dis differences, discrepancies, or at least even if it's fairly similar, you might be out of rhythm. When one of you wants closeness, the other one wants space and vice versa. So it's a big 
big thing that couples have to be ready to navigate because what tends to happen is when your partner wants space, for many people, the message they get, especially if they have an anxious attachment style and especially if they really value that closeness and almost feel like they need it, space sounds like a rejection and space even feels like death. I'm losing you and without you, I can't survive. And so this can be a very difficult thing for partners to navigate is asking for space or creating the space that they need and for the other partner to not be offended by those requests and those needs for space, which are necessary to keep things going. So just you can see, I jumped around on a few different topics too, how complicated relationships are and how difficult it can be to maintain them, which is why it takes so much effort and work and focus to keep them going and keep them healthy and strong. But keep in mind, if you don't take care of it, if you don't try, it'll have no chance of, of surviving and of doing well. And as we're approaching Valentine's Day and we're talking about romance, yes, if you want to do the grand gestures on Monday or whenever you celebrate it, go for it. But don't forget about the little moments of romance that really create a healthy and strong relationship and keep it staying that way, healthy, happy, and strong. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking a bit about Valentine's Day, focusing on the couples and romance and what romance can mean and what to do when it comes to our relationships and preserving that romance or that passion in the relationship. But in this segment, we wanted to talk to the single people when it comes to Valentine's Day. I know it can be a really, uh, for some people, stressful or they feel really down or more depressed because they think there's an expectation to have a very romantic evening that night. So they try to find a date or it can be a reminder of being single and something they might not feel good about. So I have... Um, I mean, I guess I can have some comforting words about that, but I won't focus on that so much. Uh, a reminder, though, with the comforting words that we often have these expectations that are from the outside about how things are supposed to be, but really it's just these expectations based on some notions that don't usually really relate too much to, to reality. And you know, the timing of things and the ways they happen are not supposed to be on some outside or some time scale provided by someone else. We have to see what makes sense and what works for us. But all that being said, what's important is to look at what are we doing to create that in our lives. So if you don't want a relationship, that's fine. But if you do and don't have one, it's obviously easier said than done to have that happen for you. But I think it's important to look at, well, what am I doing or not doing that can either get in the way of that or is making that happen? And so related to this, I also think uh, relevant is probably my favorite book of all time, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And in that book, other person, unless uh, you have a relationship in your head, then knock yourself out. You don't need someone else. But if you want to actually have a relationship with someone, you need to have a someone to have that relationship with. So it's not that that other person is not important. It's very necessary and very important for us to be aware of who we choose to be in a relationship with, but we often don't focus on how we are practicing or how we are developing our own ability to love, to be in a relationship, and to experience those things. We just think we find the right person, and then it's this happily ever after type of feeling. And that goes back to, I did bring it up in the last segment, that people have that sense that all you have to do is find the right person, and then once you do, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Everything else 
is going to be easy, which is not true. And unfortunately, gives people this notion that if they're in a relationship, once they face issues, that means this person was not the one. When that's not the case, everyone is going to have that uh, happen because that's how relationships are. You have issues. There's going to be stuff that comes up, arguments, disagreements, challenges. So we shouldn't think that with the right person, you'll have no problems. With the right person, you'll be able to have less problems and also be able to navigate those problems together in a better way. It still won't be easy. So think about yourself. How are you uh, working on yourself and your own ability to be in a relationship? So that involves many things. And by the way, I'll add this. It's not this, you know, wait, work on everything and then go into relationships. Sometimes there are some bigger things that we need to do that. Or if you've gone through a breakup, give yourself some time to heal that. But the reason why I make that point is because sometimes people will use this as an excuse. We are preparing uh, for something. So we're not quite ready, but really it's more of our avoidance to avoid the intimacy, to avoid the, the pressure of being in a relationship that we will come up for reasons to do that. So it's like we're training, but the Olympics never seem to come. You know, it's always going to be the next Olympics or the next Olympics after that. We're just training, but never actually performing or practicing. And so we don't want to fall into that trap that I'm not ready yet because I'm keep working on something, which people do in a lot of ways too. I'm looking at this in an artistic type of way too, where people, because I'm going through a book myself with some friends that I might talk about more. But anyway, we can have this notion that, you know, we're, we're not ready yet. And it's like, we think we're being productive, but really we're avoiding. So oftentimes people might use that as a excuse or as a tactic that because I'm still preparing, it's not time for me to, to put myself out there. So don't do that necessarily, but be aware of these things that in general, we should be doing working on ourselves. So one important thing when it comes, one uh, thing when it comes to relationships and it should be noted that even if you're in a relationship, it's not too late. You hopefully are in this process, but it's not too late to do those things. So not to think that if you're in a relationship, this doesn't apply to you. But in understanding yourself when it comes to relationships, there's a few very important factors to look at. So one is we have to understand our past. And when I say that specifically, your family relationships with your parents, especially, and what your childhood was like, because those early attachment relationships will have a big impact on how you are in relationships, who you're attracted to and who you attract, and the types of relationships that you're going to create. So it's very important to understand what your own relational history is. And so I don't mean yet about like your own romantic relationship history, but your own relationship history growing up as a child, because our attachment style tends to get figured out pretty early and can change, but it's more stable than not. So you can understand something about yourself as uh, one thing you can understand about yourself is your attachment style. Am I secure, which is great, or do I fall into either an anxious attachment style, an avoidant attachment style, or an anxious avoidant attachment style? And you can actually take these tests online. Um, it might not be so precise, but it might give you an idea to do that. Or there's a book called Attached, which goes into attachment theory, which I read a couple of years ago and discussed on the show. And you can look at the tests it has in there or read the descriptions. You might get a sense of who you are when it comes to that. So if you're anxious... Unfortunately, that means that you doubt the stability of someone being there. You doubt that they'll like you. You feel a little bit on edge that they won't be with you. And so because of that, you could be 
come off clingy or constantly asking for reassurance because you're doubting that the person likes you. On the other end, avoidant individuals will avoid intimacy and getting close. So they might just prefer casual relationships or not to get too serious. And unfortunately, what can happen is that anxious and avoidant people can find each other and it could become this dynamic that's constantly there as long as a relationship lasts where the anxious person is feeling like, okay, maybe this person doesn't like me. I want to make sure they do. And of course, the avoidant person isn't giving too much because they're avoidant. And so the anxious person pulls more to get reassurance and closeness. But unfortunately, this backfires and makes the avoidant person feel more closed in on, more controlled. And so they might pull back even more. And so the cycle continues. Sometimes it's called pursue, withdraw type of a experience where there's the pursuer who's the more anxious one who wants that connection and closeness and the one who withdraws who doesn't like to be close and because of that pulls away. So it can be important to know your attachment style because that can have an impact on how you will be in relationships and the ways that you might act, the things you do that might even sabotage unconsciously what's happening. And also you can work on that to a degree. For example, if you're avoidant, you might better understand what contributes to that. What are those fears of intimacy? Because to me, if you're avoidant underneath that tends to be an anxiety. So there's an anxiety of, be, of being close, a fear of intimacy that's there. It comes off strong that I don't need anyone, but really it's coming from that weakness or that fear of being close that's creating that uh, independent type of mindset or behavior that the individual might have. So it could be good to understand your attachment style and then not just looking at that label, but really understanding those parental relationships and looking at the issues you have with your parents, had with your parents, and how that's affecting you now, especially because the, the cliche that's there but is very true is that you tend to be attracted to people who are like your parents. And unfortunately, often the things about your parents that are unhealthy or led to unresolved issues between you and them. Uh, a great book outlining this is Harville Hendricks's book, Getting the Love You Want, uh, attracted to someone who... Uh, is like our parents and, and the things that were not resolved or were not good about them because it creates these wounds. And unfortunately, someone who is like our parents, it feels like home. And when, when I hear that, that definitely resonates. But now uh, learning more and more about the brain and how it works and how it's a predicting machine, we can understand that something about that feels comfortable. And unconsciously, you just feel good around someone who reminds you of your parents, even if it's unhealthy qualities that they have that is making you feel that way. It still feels like home, even if the, you know, lemonade is poisoned, but it tastes like the lemonade from old, you'll still want to drink it because it gives you that familiar feeling, but it's really a, has that familiar feeling because that poison is in it too. And so we get attracted to that, uh, partner who is like our parent, who we have unresolved issues with. So you want to know your parents and what those issues are because you unconsciously will be drawn to those kinds of people that actually might be the worst kinds of people for you. And so what we often see is when people are head over heels for someone they just meet, and that sounds like what we all should be looking for. That sounds what, like what real love is and real passion is. Unfortunately, it's the people that are worst for us very often that we're most immediately head over heels for. So something to look out for. It's kind of sounds like I'm trying to be a killjoy where it's like the person you're feeling most excited about. I'm telling you, you shouldn't be with. Uh, it's not that black and white, but it's something you definitely want to pay attention to. Um, there's this adage of 
when you meet your soulmate, your your heart won't be beating fast. It'll be calm. You'll feel a sense of peace. And I think there's something to that. The person that's good for you won't actually make you kind of feel all those intense butterflies. There'll be some, but it'll be different. And what I've also seen with a lot of people uh, in therapy as they're dating is we so often confuse butterflies and this positive attraction and excitement with what is actually happening, which is anxiety. So sometimes you'll date someone and they're triggering things from your past and you're actually feeling very anxious. And that's what you're feeling that you think is the excitement about the person or they're so unpredictable or all over the place or they give you some love and they take it away that it makes you very anxious when it comes to them. You can't stop thinking about them, not in a positive way, but because you're unsure of what you're going to get from them. You're trying to read between the lines and try to predict what they're going to do next because they're so unpredictable. So unfortunately, we can be bad at times of differentiating between anxiety and a negative excitement and a positive excitement. And it's interesting now that I'm saying it, that this happens both ways. Sometimes we miss the negative part of it. So you might be dating someone and you um, think that you're in love and think that it's butterflies, but really it's anxiety and it's something unhealthy there. But also sometimes we're actually excited about something, but also a bit nervous, but we only focus on the nervous part. So you're about to give a presentation or a talk that you, you know, could be very important for you. And you think you're just anxious and nervous and that's bad, but it's actually also that you're feeling excited too. And so you might actually miss the excitement part and only see the negative. Sometimes in dating, you might do the other, other thing or go the opposite way. So knowing yourself, understanding yourself and, and what you've been through can be very important in recognizing who do I get attracted to? And then you want to try to ask yourself why. We don't often know, and you won't probably have a good, clear answer. But what I advise people to do is to think about those red flags that are your personal red flags that you might not want to face. Things like, do they remind me of my parent from the past? And ask yourself, can I see any of those signs in this individual? It can be hard to tell because often the things that we're talking about don't show up till later in the relationship, but it's something to be mindful of. Can this person be like this, you know, the people from my past, whether it's people I've dated or my, my parents from the past? Um, and often people will notice a pattern. So people will say, oh, my luck, I keep dating these guys that are like this or these girls that are like this. But I would say take that luck part out of the equation. Yes, there is some luck and when we meet people and all of those things, but when there's a pattern, there tends to be a reason for that pattern. Why do you keep getting attracted to and attracting these types of people? And it's not to blame you if you've been hurt a lot in your relationships by those people. It's actually to show you that you have more authority and more control over what's going on. You have been in some level choosing these people and you can choose differently. And that's going to be the choice and the option that is there for you. Now, I'm at a commercial break, but I'll continue with some of these thoughts about getting yourself ready when it comes to dating. Also, if you're in a relationship, things to be aware of in yourself because it's going to affect you in your relationship. So let's go to our last commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was uh, talking to individuals who are single, but of course, if you're in a relationship too, about, you know, you might be down about Valentine's Day, but focusing on not just finding someone, which as Eric Fromm talks about in The Art of Loving, we think of as the main or only issue when it comes to love and finding love is finding the person to love. But as he talks about in that book, 
looking at yourself and how are you being as a loving person, developing your own uh, abilities and uh, capabilities to love and being in a loving relationship. So I was touching on different things of understanding yourself better. So again, rather than just focusing on finding someone, first you have to find yourself and understand yourself, understand what's happened to you in your relationships and in your childhood to better prepare yourself to find a good partner and then to create a better relationship with someone. So understanding what happened in your childhood is very important. Talked about that. Uh, understanding uh, your parents and your relationships with them, who they are, their pros and cons or goods, strengths and qualities that they have and also the bad ones that have hurt you and how that might attract you or uh, get you into a relationship with someone who might not be actually a good person for you to be in a relationship with. Um, obviously, therapy can be a great way to explore these issues more deeply. I touched on in the first segment today about myself going back to therapy, which uh, I think has been a great journey and a great uh, process for me. But if we don't understand ourselves, we won't be able to really know what we're looking for, or why we're, we're looking for it. And as I often say, therapy is less about just fixing some set problems that you have. And it's actually much more about self-awareness and understanding yourself better. So in a, if you're looking for love and you keep looking outside, yes, you need to find someone to be in a relationship with. But don't forget to look at yourself and look within yourself too to understand yourself better. And maybe now uh, I'll transition a bit into loving yourself. So we've heard the adage of you can't love someone else unless you love yourself. I think it's a bit complicated. It depends on what we mean by love, because I think every human being on earth can love themselves more or have improvements on self-love. It's just something that we all can struggle with, how to do it, how to have genuine self-love versus some kind of arrogance or conceitedness or selfishness, how to not loathe or hate ourselves even or see ourselves as unlovable, finding a balanced sense of self-love. But I still think we we often do, you know, we do love each other still. We do have love that people give even though they haven't necessarily figured that out completely. I think self-love is, like many things that we go through as human beings, a lifelong journey of understanding and exploration. But coming back to this notion of knowing ourselves. To truly love something, we have to know it and understand it. Um, and now we would think you know yourself if you are yourself, but that's not necessarily the case. People are very good at finding ways of avoiding feeling their feelings and really getting in touch with themselves and what they are experiencing. So we should definitely not take in as a given that we know ourselves so that we have that first step to love ourselves. Uh, the book I, I talked about recently was called Know Thyself, and it was about self-awareness and understanding ourselves better. So we, we must recognize that we don't just by default know ourselves very well. Even in therapy, I, I deal with this often where clients will ask them, how do you feel about something? And they say, I don't know, which is actually a real answer. They're not aware of it. Uh, we have a feeling, but it doesn't mean we're conscious of the feeling. So your 
mind, your body, you're always having a state of being. Right now, I have many different types of feelings. Emotionally, I, I feel something physically. I feel something in sense of temperature. I might have different sensations on my body that are part of my feelings as far as the physical and the, the emotional being uh, coming together. So I'm having a lot of these things that I might not be aware of. And then something might happen and I become more aware of it. Or if I turn my focus, I might become more aware of it. But it isn't just automatic. And so by default, we don't have um, ourselves in mind or else we won't see what's there. So you can try journaling. You can also try, sometimes people will set little alarms or little um, reminders to ask themselves how they feel. And so just by turning in, we might recognize, oh, you know, I feel a little bit anxious. I think it's about some work stuff. Or I feel a little bit down. I think it was that conversation I had. Or I feel a little bit happy. Or I'm excited. I'm anticipating going to that place tomorrow. You know, whatever it is, we might recognize the feelings only if we turn towards them and see what is there. So to love ourselves, we have to first look inward to understand ourselves. But then to also love ourselves, we have to be willing to have a compassionate response to what we have gone through. Now, by that, I mean everyone in their life has made mistakes or has done things that they wish had been different or has strengths and weaknesses and insecurities and a whole, a whole bunch of things. But it's how we respond to those things. You know, sometimes because of how we've been raised and how society talks about different issues, the feeling is, I'll love myself once I work on this thing. I'll love myself once I get over this, right? Recognizing that we can see ourselves and find ourselves as love, lovable can be really valuable. Now, one way we can think about this is when we think of a child or think of a baby. If I tell you or you see a baby that's being born, you're not going to look at that child and wonder if that child deserves love. You will just inherently feel that that child is lovable just for being. There's nothing they need to do or not do. They inherently are lovable and you wouldn't expect anything from them in that way. And that lovability part extends to us even as adults. It doesn't mean what we do doesn't matter and no matter what you do, it's as good as every, anything else or that if you hurt people, that's okay and it's just as good as doing kind things to others or if you work hard in positive ways, that's equal to not doing it. There are other consequences to our actions that should be there. But this sense of lovability needs to be there from the beginning. And going back to this notion of trying to change ourselves, Carl Rogers has this wonderful quote that I really like, which is that the curious paradox is only when I accept myself as I am, then can I change. Which, can, as it says in the quote itself, it sounds like a paradox that when I accept myself as I am, then can I change. And so if I love myself for however I am today, it's much easier to change rather than if I think, oh, I'm such a, it's, I'm a loser because I'm this way. It's so horrible. I'm that way. And I have to change this thing. It makes it much harder to change when we do that. Even we see this with addiction. If someone has had a relapse, let's say um, they have an, a drinking problem. They've been having a hard time with alcohol. If they haven't, you know, had a drink for two months and then they finally do, very often what's common with addiction is a, a huge feeling of shame comes to them afterwards. Regret, shame, disappointment, all those things. And so we might think, yes, that wasn't a good thing. It's not good if you are trying to avoid drinking because it's hurting you to drink. But how much you 
hurt yourself is going to be really important in figuring out how well you'll do going forward. And so what we find is that if after you relapse, you beat yourself up, oh, you're such a this, I can't believe it. No one's going to love you. Your life is ruined. You know, you're going to keep messing everything up. Whatever that negative self-talk is and you stay stuck there, unfortunately, you are more likely to drink the next day or to drink again soon. People think, well, no, I need to punish myself to, to prove that I know this is wrong. And so I learn from it. But unfortunately, when you punish yourself in that way with shame and blame and putting yourself down, it's going to create these big negative feelings that can become overwhelming. And guess what? If you have a drinking problem, what you do when you have big problems is you're likely to go drink again. So unfortunately, beating yourself up about doing something that wasn't good is not going to help you to stop doing it again. Now, if you can respond with compassion, which doesn't ignore what happened, you don't say way to go, that was good that you had a drink, but you recognize that you've slipped and you've made a mistake or you've had what, you know, an error that in your thinking or your judgment or something has happened. I've done this and I recognize that I acknowledge it even from a loving place that I don't deserve to put myself in the situation. So I don't want to do this again, not because I don't want to be a loser, or, you know, put myself down in these ways. It's actually because I love myself. I don't want this for myself. You're much more likely to be able to find the courage, the resources. Also, the less shameful you feel, the more likely you are to reach out for help. Because if it's such a shameful thing you did, you don't want to see it yourself, but you sure as heck don't want anyone else to see it either. So you don't tell anyone to get support. To tell someone, you know what, I slipped, I, I, I want some help. Can you help me so I don't drink again tonight or to make me get out of this mood that I'm in or whatever it is that's going on. Unfortunately, if you um, don't, if you feel so much shame and don't have that self-love, sadly, you might not ask for help. And, and generally, when we look at people dealing with addiction, self-love is low. It's low, I think, for most people in general, but you tend to see it there. And unfortunately, that can make it even more difficult to help ourselves, but also to ask for help. So concluding, because we're getting to the end of uh, the show for today, if we can put more attention in knowing ourselves, and then once we know ourselves, we have the possibility to love ourselves. And if we can focus on that, that can go a long way of just taking care of ourselves in general. But then even when you consider having loving relationships, it's not that you can't be in them unless you love yourself, but you can be in a much better relationship with others when you are in a much better relationship with yourself. When you love yourself, you can more easily accept the love of others and love someone else in a healthier and better way. So when we think of Valentine's Day coming up, yes, do whatever romantic things you want, but don't forget about the romance with yourself of loving yourself and making sure you feel good and okay with who you are and feel that lovability is not up for debate or dispute. You are lovable because you are you. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. Hope you have a wonderful day and weekend. I'll be with you Monday night. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a great day.